we are going to study 1 Timothy for a while. Uh, we're going to break for a Christmas message, but I tell you, I get twitchy when I do topical sermons in a row. <laughs> the reason for that is topical sermons are good and appropriate for occasions, uh, but what we really need to grow together is a steady diet of verse-by-verse exposition of the Scripture. That way you take what God says, all of it, in the order that he said it in a particular book, and you explain clearly what he had to say. Now that has the wonderful benefit of removing any and every agenda of the pastor and placing at the forefront the agenda that God had when writing the Scripture. Let me ask you a question, and... Y'all, it's just us. This is audience participation time. What teaching would you say is the greatest competitor to the true gospel these days? Any ideas? Yeah, Mormonism. Definitely some other other religious uh, other religions that aren't uh, Christian. You know, I think, and I know it's been a long time since I've been in college, but I have a couple of daughters in college. And Darwinian evolution, to me, is one of the one of the largest competitors in worldview for the Christian faith. Um, another one is hedonism. Now, what hedonism means is the pursuit of pleasure above everything else. And uh, you watch TV for five minutes and look at a commercial, and you'll see that we live in a very hedonistic society. Another worldview that is a competitor is materialism. You know, we want stuff. Uh, we give thanks for the stuff we have on Thursday, and then we kill each other trying to get more stuff on Friday, right? That's what we do in America. So materialism is definitely a competitor to the worldview of Christianity. But let me tell you, those, those three have problems, though. Um, one, Darwinian evolution and atheism is just contrary to logic it's irrational and unscientific. Now, I know that there are a lot of scientists who would disagree with me, um, but I, I majored in biology in college and music. But anyway, I finished my biology degree, and I took an extra class in biology that was a 500-level class, and it was called evolutionary biology. And the reason I took it was I was looking for some rationale that could explain to me how intelligent people um, believe and subscribe to Darwinian evolution. I never found it. I studied and I looked and I couldn't find a rational explanation for rational people believing in Darwinian evolution. Now, hedonism and materialism are attractive to everyone. I mean, we, we live here in America, right? We, we like to have pleasure. We like to have stuff. But those aren't very religious, are they? And when, when people feel that, well, we need... Uh, religion. We need to deal with God in some way, so we can't just abandon God altogether and move into hedonism or materialism. But what if you could have hedonism and materialism and God? Now that might sell really well. Actually, it does sell really well, and it's called the prosperity gospel. David W. Jones and Russell S. Woodridge wrote a book called Health, Wealth, and Happiness. They report that, now listen to this, this is amazing. Statistics are boring, but this is amazing. 46% of self-proclaimed Christians in the United States 
agree with the idea that God will grant material riches to all believers who have enough faith. Why do you think people believe something that is so clearly unbiblical? Well, it's an obvious answer, isn't it? It's because they don't know the Bible. They don't know what's in the Bible. So when they hear this false prosperity gospel, they don't know that it's contrary to Scripture because they don't know Scripture. The goal, again guys, the goal of our current Sunday School initiative is to get you into the Word on a daily basis. I cannot stress the importance of this too strongly. Please show up. Show up and participate in what we're doing in Sunday School. Uh, Guys, I've told you before, but I'll keep reminding you that the number one indicator of spiritual growth for the Christian is... Say it with me, daily Bible reading. Okay, yes, that's it. Now, how are we going to know Christian doctrine if we don't know what's in the Bible? We can't spot the counterfeit when we have no idea what the true looks like, right? That's why it is essential that we get into the scripture and see what it says. John MacArthur was talking about preaching one time, and he said, when you're in your introduction, don't ever let your front porch be bigger than your house. <laughs> okay, that's good advice, and I follow that advice, except for today. Today we are doing an introduction to the whole book of First Timothy. So the only scripture I'm going to get into is the first two verses. But I want you to understand who wrote it, I want you to understand why he wrote it, and I want you to understand to whom he wrote it. Because if we really will learn that and understand that, it will help us gain an appreciation for the whole book overall. Guys, on the back of your bulletin, there is a place that says sermon notes. (laughs) If you want to remember anything said today, I strongly suggest you write it down. I have found that the weakest ink is stronger than my memory. Okay, so if you want to remember something, write it down. We can only know what real Christian doctrine is by studying the real Bible. The way you won't be led astray by false doctrine is to study the word. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14 says this, And he, and this is clearly talking about Jesus from previous context, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Guys, if we're going to be mature and not be tossed to and fro by every false doctrine out there, we're going to have to mature in Christ through the study of Scripture. Now, this is part of God's job description for a pastor. Um, Churches have job descriptions, and if you're going to serve at that church, you better read it and obey it. But more importantly is God's job description for a pastor, which says to equip you, to build you up, and to help you mature in the faith. That is my job, and I take it very seriously. But to do that, 
you must, you must read your Bibles. And I can't make you, but I can encourage you. And that's what I'm doing. False doctrine has been a threat to the church for the whole life of the church. When Paul was giving his final instructions to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 29, and 30, he warned them about this by saying, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We'll see in our study of 1 Timothy that that did not take long for that false doctrine to enter the church. Paul and Timothy were not battling the prosperity gospel. But one form of twisted doctrine or another form has been with the church and threatening the church for its whole existence. The letters of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are referred to as the pastoral epistles. And if you ever hear anybody talk about the pastoral epistles, they're just talking about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, because that's where Paul writes to these younger men and says, hey guys, this is how church is supposed to work. This is how the pastor is supposed to function. This is how the church is supposed to behave. 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his true child in the faith, as he is called in 1 Timothy 1-2. Timothy was younger than Paul, and he had assisted Paul in a number of ministry contexts. And I'm going to give you some verses, and we're going to see where Paul speaks very highly of Timothy. 1 Thessalonians 3-1-2. and 2. Danny's got a lot of slides up there. Thank you for doing that this morning and doing a good job. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. Now, you don't send an immature believer to exhort them and uh, establish them in the faith. So Paul trusted that Timothy would do a very good job. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul said, hey, look, do, do what I do. And I'm going to send Timothy to you because he knows what I do. And he'll be able to teach you. 1 Corinthians 16, 10 and 11 When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Philippians 2, 19-22 I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So we see that Paul knew Timothy. He loved Timothy. And he trusted Timothy. So that's the context in which we're going to see this letter. I mean, you know, really, God provided the scripture for us, absolutely. But in a sense, we're reading somebody else's mail, right? (laughs) Paul sent this letter to Timothy, and we are reading somebody else's mail. So we need to understand who wrote it, to whom they wrote it, and why they wrote it. 
These instructions are to his beloved friend, and they're very helpful for all of us to know how we are to conduct ourselves as a church, as a body of believers. What were the false teachers teaching in Timothy's day? Uh, Well, we're reading one side of this, right? So we don't know everything about it, but we can glean a lot of information. For instance, they were straying in their doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.3 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So I don't know what their different doctrine was, but it was something, it was a twisting of biblical Christianity. They were preoccupied with myths, genealogies, and speculations. In verse 4, we see... He says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We know that they misused the law. Verse 1 7 says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Uh, Have you ever met anybody that has no idea what they're talking about, but they're really confident, right? We see that regularly. If, if not, watch more politics, and you will see it. Um, people who make confident assertions often lead other people astray, even though they have no idea what they're talking about. They were apparently immoral. In, uh, in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we read, Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are... Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, I don't know what handed over to Satan means exactly, but that's not good when Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan. I think what he's talking about is that he has excommunicated them. He has, he has seen that they are thrown out of the fellowship of the church. And their offense was blasphemy. Their consciences were seared. In, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You know, the Lord gives us a conscience, and that is a blessing. But we can kill the thing if we try hard enough and long enough. And so apparently they had gotten to that point. They were forbidding marriage and certain foods. Verse uh, 3 of chapter 4 says, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. These people who were causing trouble in the church and bringing false doctrine craved controversy and quarrels. By the way, that's a pretty easy way to spot a troublemaker in the church. They enjoy controversy and quarrels. Chapter 6, verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. Guys, you see that verse 4 here says he's puffed up with conceit. A few verses ago they said that people make confident assertions. If somebody is trying to lead you astray, they're going to be arrogant, they're going to be confident, and they're going to assert it with certainty. That doesn't mean they're right. So what we have to do is, you know, people that won't discuss things, that won't look at options, that won't possibly see things from another point of view, a lot of times you can tell that is a person on the path to making trouble in the church. They were using godliness for material gain, chapter 6, verse 5. 
and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Um, I, I knew of a pastor one time who said, I can tell you why I was led to the ministry. I intended to be, I don't remember, I think it was a geologist. And uh, so I went to school for that and I, I failed out of it. So I realized God was taking me to the ministry. Um, that may have just meant he wasn't very smart. You know, I, I, don't, mean to be, I don't mean to be rude, but I, I don't think that's necessarily a call to ministry. If you decide, hey, this is a decent way I can make a buck, that is not a call to ministry. Paul did not think peace was more important than doctrine. Guys, I love peace, but nothing is more important than having correct doctrine. Um, You know, quite the opposite is what Paul thought. Paul thought doctrine is more important than peace. Peace is wonderful, but peace around what? You have to have a truth around which you can have peace and communion and fellowship. Now, notice that this is not difference in secondary or tertiary issues. Uh, It's a difference in the gospel itself. Now, if we have a difference in some little things about, you know, what is is represented by the seventh horn of the beast in Revelation? Who cares? You know, I don't know. And and I might have an opinion and you might have an opinion. And they might be different opinions. Um, There is a point of contention uh, sometimes in Southern Baptist life where some people believe that um, you're brought into the faith by God. Some people, bring, some people think you brought yourself into the faith by your own volition. And uh, at our last Southern Baptist Conference, a guy got up there, and he was recommending J.D. Greer to be the president. And he said, guys, whether you think you were drafted or whether you think you volunteered, we're in the same army. <laughs> I thought that's a great way to put that. We need to be unified, strongly unified in the things of the gospel. And on secondary or or tertiary issues, we can have a little bit of difference and do that with grace. We need dogmatic, unwavering unity in the gospel and charity and understanding in less important issues. Because people who earnestly, earnestly are trying their best to be faithful to Scripture can differ on less important issues and still work together for the gospel. Here are some of the questions that Paul will address for us in 1 Timothy. So if you're thinking, you know, I know people talk about trying to make Scripture relevant. And when you preach, you need to make Scripture relevant. Well, I don't need to because it's already relevant. Uh, I, I need to expose its relevance, and that's all. So let me tell you some of the things that Paul is going to address for us in this letter. Chapter 1, how do Old Testament laws apply to Christians today? That's something we need to know. Chapter 2, can women teach in the church? Chapter 3, who is qualified to be an elder or a deacon? Chapter 4, how do I spot false teachers? Chapter 5, which widows should the church support? Chapter 6, what should wealthy Christians do with their money? These are all things that are very contemporary and very needful for us to learn. 1 Timothy three, fourteen and 15 summarizes what we're going to learn from this book. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul is going to tell us how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God 
a pillar and buttress of the truth. All right, that was the front porch. Now to the text. Let's start in 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you're like me, some of us will read that and go, okay, that said, dear Timothy. <laughs> but it didn't really. It said a lot more than that if we'll slow down for a second and look at what it really says. First, I want us to see what it means for us that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. It means that First Timothy is authoritative for all of us who are believers. It was written by an apostle. I hope that's big enough for y'all to see. Um, it was written by an apostle and, and recognized as an authoritative part of Scripture. God is ultimately the author of all Scripture. Therefore, it is perfect and timeless and binding on every believer. And there have been uh, people, and even been Southern Baptists, who before the conservative resurgence would say, you know, I think the Bible contains truth. Uh, I think the Bible has a lot of truth in it. I think the Bible has spots that are inspired. Thank God, since the conservative resurgence, the Bible, we Baptists realize and believe and, and profess that the Bible is entirely inspired. If it were only partially inspired, then the preacher would, or the theologian would have to be inspired to spot the inspired spots, right? And that's not good. We don't need that kind of theology. We need theology that says God is the author of this book and every single thing in it is profitable for us and we need to read it, learn it, and obey it. To be among the original 12 apostles, Acts 1, 21 and 22 gives us what the requirements were. Verse 21 says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So when Judas was gone, you know, the 11 got together and said, Hey, we need another guy. And the other guy that we're going to pick from has to have been with us, has to have seen Jesus in his earthly ministry from the time of his baptism until the time of his ascension. And then they cast lots and selected somebody. Now Paul was not one of these, but he was commissioned directly by the risen Lord whose church he was persecuting. Paul wasn't voted in by men. He was, he was specially appointed and anointed by God. And his message is trustworthy. And so yes, it's an introduction. But it's an introduction that says, hey, I'm the Apostle Paul. And that means he is one sent from God with God's very own message for us. Notice that verse 1 says, God our Savior. Your salvation was the plan and purpose of God from the beginning of time. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Anybody? All right, you're supposed to laugh there. Okay, so the point of that is God knew everything from the very beginning. If it doesn't thrill your soul and drive you to worship to know that God has had all of this planned out, let me tell you this. God didn't just make it possible for some people to maybe be saved. He purposed to save you. And if you don't believe me, look with me in Revelation 13, 7 and 8. 
It says, also it, and from previous context, that means the beast. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not, has not been written before the foundation of the world. Now, a name written, that's specific. That is specifically you. Your name was written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. God chose to love you before he created the world. Doesn't that amaze you? Doesn't that make you want to be a better and better servant of his? The next thing I want you to see is that Jesus Christ is our living hope. We like that song around here, don't we? Verse 1 goes on to say that he is an apostle by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, don't get the idea that hope means what it normally means in the English vernacular. If we say, I hope that, you know, so-and-so football team is going to win, we don't know, right? (laughs) Anything can happen, as we saw yesterday. Anything can happen on a given Saturday, right? But let me tell you, it's not that kind of hope. Hope in the Bible doesn't mean it's iffy. It just means that the final realization of all that we have in Christ has not yet come to pass. It certainly will, though. Let me take you to Romans for a second and show you something that I really hope is going to give you joy. Romans eight twenty nine and 30, we get to see the whole picture at one time. Eight twenty nine says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's talk about when these things happen. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. When did that happen? Well, we said just a minute ago, right, that it happened before the foundation of the earth. Now, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, and notice it doesn't say some of those, whom he, those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, when did he call you? Well, I don't know, whenever you were saved, right? He called me when I was in the sixth grade. That was a long time ago. That's when he called me. And those whom he called, he also justified. When were you justified? Well, when you were saved, when I was in the sixth grade, I was called by God. I was justified by God. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you're you're looking at me and you're saying, dude, you don't look too glorified. I understand. I have not yet been glorified. I'm waiting on that part. But you see that the scripture speaks of it in the past tense. It is good as done. All of those whom he called, he predestined, he... he, uh, I'll get the foreknew, predestined, conformed, called, justified, glorified. That is a chain whose links will not break. If you're in the beginning of that chain, you will be in the end of that chain. Now, some folks think, well, what if I did get saved, but I don't make it all the way? Well, let me tell you, that can't happen because of what we just saw. But if you didn't get that, Paul goes on a few verses later to make sure that you understand that. Um, Chapter 8, verse 38, read this. It says, For I am sure 
that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any else, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing past, nothing present, nothing future, nothing period can separate us from the love of God. You know, when, when my kids were little, I would tell them to hold my hand when I'd walk across the street. Now, was there any chance that they were going to get squished by a car because they let go? No. Because you know what? I had them. <laughs> I wasn't letting go. Okay? So, you may say, well, what if we let go of God? Well, we're not going to because he will keep us. But he's holding on to us. And he's giving us the grace to hold on to him. So we will see this thing to the end if we are truly believers. Back in 1 Timothy, verse 2 says this, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we already talked pretty thoroughly about Paul and Timothy's relationship, right? So now let's look at grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. First thing, we are saved by grace and grace alone. Personal merit doesn't enter into the equation. Do you know why? It's simple. We don't have any. <laughs> That's why personal merit cannot be part of our salvation. Uh, Jesus tells a parable where he says, Hey, so if you do everything your master tells you to do, what reward do you get for that? Nothing. You're supposed to do that, right? So when we do obey, we're just doing what we're supposed to. And then all the time we disobey. So we are saved by grace alone. We're either saved by grace alone or we aren't saved by grace at all. Romans eleven six, Paul makes this clear. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's either grace or it's works. Paul is as clear as he can be, isn't it? That grace, by definition, only comes to us because of the great mercy of God. There is no reason. We don't deserve grace, guys. If you, if you start thinking about deserving grace, then that's like, a, that's like a married bachelor. That doesn't even make sense. Those words don't go together. Grace is something that we can't, can't deserve because, by definition, grace is just God's unmerited, undeserved favor. And it comes to us by the mercy of God. This gives us the opportunity to have peace with God, but not only with God, with one another. You know, if believers can't be peaceful, uh, I, I don't know who could be. Our final destination is not of this world. You know, our hope does not rest in the next election or the next law that's passed. Our purpose is clear and our victory is assured and if you have a purpose from God to reconcile other people, and you have the assurance that we just read about in Romans 8, that those whom he foreknew, he predestined and conformed and all this stuff, all the way to being glorified, our victory is certain. And so we ought to be people of peace. Now, lost people do not have peace with God. Romans 8, 5 through 8 says this, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay? It cannot. People who are lost are going to act lost. Why? Because they cannot do otherwise. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Some people I've heard, and I've heard them tell me this while I'm witnessing to them, they think they have a special deal worked out with God. It is unique to them and all of humanity. They will say, hey, God and I have an understanding. Uh, you know, I, I leave him alone, he leaves me alone. <laughs> well, these people are absolutely deluded because they do not understand the truth that in, in reality they are rebellious against God and hostile toward him. Let me assure you, based on the word of God, that peace with God comes only through the reconciliation provided through the gospel. The gospel is this. We started a war with God. God created us, and he said, hey, I've given you all this good stuff. Enjoy it. Now, there's one thing I don't want you to do. And then the serpent came along and said, hey, you know, God's lying to you. It's really to your benefit to rebel against him and to take that one thing he told you not to take. And these stupid people said, huh, I think you're right. And they decided to put their faith in the word of the serpent rather than in the word of God. They rebelled against him. Now, to make matters worse, we do the same thing, right? Every time you sin and every time I sin, we ratify the decision that our forefathers made. We agree that, yeah, rebelling against God is the thing to do. So we started this war. God ended it by sending his son who lived a perfect righteous life that we could not live and who died in my place, a death that he did not deserve. And in your place, a death that you did not deserve. That he did not deserve. And that you richly did. So, back to Romans eight twenty eight for a second. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Is that you? I don't know. But I can tell you how you can know. If you respond to the preaching of the gospel, and if you respond by placing your faith in Christ and repenting of your sins, then we just identified you as one of those people who are discussed in Romans eight twenty eight and 29. And 30, you are one of those folks that are in that chain to ultimately be glorified in the presence of God. Now, some of you in here may not have done that yet, but you have the opportunity to do it right now. Jimmy's going to come and we're going to sing. And what, what we do that for is, one, if you have something that is burdening you and you want me to pray with you about, it'd be my privilege to do so. If you're here today and you say, I need to get plugged in to a church. Um, I need somebody to encourage me. I need somebody to pray for me. I need somebody to carry my burdens with me. And guys, we all need that. If you're here today and you say, I want to join this church, then come up and we'll talk about how to start that process. The third thing is, if you are not certain that you are saved, that you are in Christ, come up today and I'm walking an aisle won't save you. Praying a prayer with me won't save you. Placing your faith in Christ and repenting will save you. And I can tell you how to do that, okay? So let's all stand together and sing.